Welcome to Side Talks. This is the official podcast for the Sidewalk Film Festival and Cinema. I'm Rachel Morgan, creative director for the Sidewalk Film Festival and Cinema. And I'm Corey Kraft, feature film programmer for the Sidewalk Film Festival. This is the podcast where we talk about all kinds of things sidewalk, and that means all, all things, things cinema. cinema. And now, a look at what we're watching this week. Corey, what are you watching? So, um, in between... Um, binge-watching Game of Thrones in preparation for its return in mid-April. I've been also trying to see some uh, new releases, some 2019 releases. Um, One I really wouldn't recommend and one that I really would that are sort of um, two sides of the same extreme cinema coin. The one I wouldn't really recommend, though I am happy that it did get theatrical play here in Birmingham, is Gaspar Noé's Climax the movie of his that made me finally realize that I think I'm just allergic to him and um, <laughs> can't really can't really deal with what he's uh, selling. This is um, a movie that posits the extreme scenario. What if uh, a step up movie um, was super uh, drug fueled and crazy and basically just devolved into um, a dance troupe? beating the hell out of each other and having indiscriminate drugged up sex. And this isn't good? It's not. You know, I say that, and as I say it, that very much sounds like a movie I would enjoy watching. And, <laughs> it, you know, at the beginning, uh, it it is, we do get this really remarkably choreographed dance sequence that opens the movie, which is by far the high point of it. Worth it? Maybe. Uh, But the rest of it is so tedious and um, pretentious in that Gaspar Noé way where you have these Jean-Luc Godard style like title cards and uh, crazy like credits that start at the end credits or at the beginning of the movie and the opening credits are halfway through the movie and there are no credits at the end of it because, you know, what are we even doing? Um, they'd, they'd already done all the credits. Yeah, so there's no, there's no, there's time no for reason that. to. Um, well, I'm leaving. I'm leaving here to see it. Yeah. So we can reconvene on that one. I'm sure. You know, everybody seems to like it. I was told this is the Noé film for people who don't really like Noé, but it wasn't for me. I thought it. He has a tendency to make his even this hour and a half movie feel like it's three hours long. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll I'll just say this: it feels like a feature-length version of the last 10 minutes of, of Darren Aronofsky's mother. Ugh. So it, it's... Well, I, you know what? Let's not even spend any more time on technically that. Technically proficient, but hollow and stupid. Um, <laughs> the movie I will recommend, though, that that is kind of um, another example of extreme cinema is a movie that, that sort of came and went, didn't really get much attention, uh, called Piercing. Piercing is the second film from uh, the director Nicholas... And I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Pesci, Pesky, I think. Um, he first, he debuted a couple years ago with a black and white horror movie called The Eyes of My Mother. And this is uh, an Italian giallo-inspired um, weird S&M romantic comedy <laughs> with Christopher Abbott as a, um, he's a normal guy with a wife at home and a little baby and his only problem really is an unstoppable compulsion to murder somebody. Sucks. So I hate when that happens. Yeah, I mean it's it really is a bummer. Um so with his wife's blessing, he takes a business trip and decides to hire the services of a sex worker 
to kill her. But the uh, young woman he hires, played by Mia Vasikovska, who over the course of this evening uh, very subtly turns the tables on him. And it's, it is a, um, it reminds me a lot of Phantom Thread in its sort of depiction of the interplay of a not very healthy um, interaction between a man and a woman. Um, but it also goes to some extreme and unsettling places with a really outstanding sense of style. Um, he borrows pretty liberally, not only from Jallo, including a lot of soundtrack needle drops from classic uh, like Argento films, but uh, there's a lot of model work and um, camera work that reminds you of the very pristine compositions of somebody like Wes Anderson, split diopter shots like Brian De Palma. We're just borrowing very liberally from all kinds of sources. And they're all sources that I like, so that it felt like a very neat, if you know, if if derivative stew of a lot of my favorite things. And it, it, it sort of culminates in a really uh, nasty little punchline that I found satisfying. Yeah, that's all fair. I mean, it's 2019. We're almost halfway through 2019, so borrow away. Yeah, might as what well. What else is left? Right. Yeah. <laughs> what do we have to look forward to? Really? Very little. So so what are you watching? So <clears throat> I, what I'm watching right now is a couple of things. There's a lot of things, actually. But the things I thought I would focus on, so I saw Apollo 11. I haven't seen that yet. I really want to. It's really, really good. Um, and I'm going to make a connection between it and, and something else that I just watched that I think everybody else has watched, too, which okay. is uh, Leaving Neverland. Yeah, I haven't watched that yet, either. So kind of reluctant to. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, it, it's weird because I'm having this sort of like I'm drawing connections between these two films that have absolutely no connection, mm-hmm. um, with exception of the fact that I guess they're both sort of looking backwards. Right. It's like documentaries that are looking in the rear view. It's just that um, Apollo 11 is completely made up of, uh, you know, of source material, of sure. found footage, so to speak. Um, and it's just really well crafted. But the it, it is interesting because it's like when you're watching it and I'm just sort of wondering how I can look at this film and be as like sort of jaw dropped as I am and sort of like even okay get this Corey you ready Mm -hmm. tear in my eye Ooh, that never happens like little moment like I was like oh my god am I patriotic (laughs) I thought this for one second and but then there's this other thing that's happening where it's just like a sea of white dudes like that's all it is like at that point in time NASA's like like there's there's like maybe three exceptions to this but it's just like a sea of white dudes and and you know white shirts with with narrow ties and and pocket protectors and it's I mean that's what it is I get it I'm not faulting the film for that I'm just simply saying that like okay space race we put a man on the moon at the same time we're like going into Vietnam you know it's it's like clearly like screw the environment like let's just whatever it takes to to put that little foot on the moon and to what end you know but at the same time so all that's happening and that's sort of my feeling is like i'm conflicted but at the same time i'm like really celebrating what's going on and i mean similarly so this is where i make the (laughs) the strange connection like when a michael jackson song comes on i'm not gonna go down this whole sort of road of like what everybody's talking about which is like well how do we separate the artist from we've got panels to take care of that right or not take care of it just talk about it and come to no conclusions and then we'll just quietly i'm gonna watch annie hall when nobody's looking so but (laughs) or not watch it i promise y'all um so but you know i hear a michael jackson song and i'm like damn it's such a good song right 
And like I hear a number of other songs that are like, damn, that song wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Michael Jackson. So I'm like, what do we, you know, it's that it's that connection between like, what do we do with a complicated past? And like hindsight is so difficult. And um, systematically, these things are in place to allow for, let's put progress in quotes in so many ways. But yeah. that system is so, f- allows for so much shit to happen. So that's my connection between those two films, both of which are really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very different. And I don't know if we call Leaving Neverland a film, really. It's sort of an episodic in a sense. Yeah. Um, and I will say, I mean, since you haven't seen it, hard to go down this road. But the thing that I'm in, the most interested in about that film is less about, like, you know, what it does to this legacy and what do we do with this this artist's work. And it's more once you see it is like how I'm interested in talking about how they systematically break down every single moment of these two gentlemen who the film is a focus of of their lives mm-hmm. and construct this argument against Michael Jackson. That's the thing that interests me the most. I mean, it's very much like an attorney just pulling apart, uh, you know, a defendant who's not there to defend himself, which, I mean, you know. Yeah, I, you know, everything I've heard about Leaving Neverland is suggested it is it's it's necessary but but harrowing viewing. And I'm, I'm not of a generation that has. I mean, I think I, I was I was born right at the crest of, of the Jackson wave. Everything you know, during my lifetime, it's just been like, yeah, he's, he's been important, but I've, I, I didn't really grow up with any, you know, fondness for him. So to see that particular sacred cow taken down, is not, you know, upsetting to me. What's upsetting to me potentially is, as you said, the meticulous sort of, uh, accounting of his misdeeds of his crimes. And, and that, you know, especially at this moment, it, it sounds difficult to take, but probably worth watching. Yeah, I think it's worth watching. I don't know if it's necessary. I mean, I'm not really sure where people come with it's necessary viewing. Mm-hmm. I don't I'm not sure about that, but I mean, it's certainly it's captivating. Sure. Grossly captivating. So, that's that's what I've been watching. <laughs> <laughs> Get ready for a 5-minute fight. 5-minute round 1 fight. fight. What is our damn topic? Wait, wait, I've got it written down. Uh, it's one that everybody's sick of hearing about, but you know what? We're going to do Let's it. Let's do it. Anyway, a star is born. <laughs> We're far from the shallow now, Rachel. Let's get into it. <laughs> a star is born 2018. <laughs> so judging by that sound effect, um, <laughs> I think it's safe to say that you're taking the anti-star is born position in this, this fight. This movie sucks. Is that, is that the extent of your argument? <laughs> it's so bad, Corey. It's so bad. Um, I understand that like a lot of the population disagrees with me. I do not care. Why the freak can't Lady Gaga do some work in this film and be something other than Lady Gaga? Why can't she actually like do a little shape shifting? Like look at Charlize Theron. She actually gained a little bit of weight. She uh-huh. put some gauze in her nose. She put in some fake teeth. She did all kinds of shit to be a monster, you know? Yeah. And and that worked for her, and she's great in it. So what you, what you were saying is that first-time non-professional actress Lady Gaga should endeavor to be more like one of the great actresses of, of oh our generation. Oh, my God. That's so unfair. First of all, Lady Gaga was born an actress. What do you think she's been doing her whole life? She's been pretending to be something. Yeah, she was on that one episode of The Sopranos eating pizza. <laughs> 
I mean, her whole thing is performance. Her whole thing is acting. But regardless, then don't cast her. That's that's outrageous. That's unfair. So you can't cast somebody who can't you can't cast somebody at that level who can't bring it. And yes, a little bit of like remove a little bit of the ego and actually be a little bit ugly if the whole plot is that you're ugly. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot to unpack here. And and so maybe <laughs> we only got like three minutes left. Dude. Maybe it's the fact that I'm not really a Gaga person. Like I, I've heard her music fine. Like, sure. It's not my thing. Uh, but I was really taken with her performance in that movie, which wow. I overall think is extremely good. Um, her, not only her performance, the movie itself and particularly Bradley Cooper's lead performance. Gross. I think he's Gross. terrific. Why can't he have a single fault? Oh, Bradley Cooper. He's just got to be so perfect. Apart from the crippling alcoholism and depression. But that's yeah, it. And, and that's not else. his fault. That's not his fault. He didn't do anything wrong. He's so precious. He's Bradley Cooper. Oh, I, we love I, I, him. I don't, I don't think that that's a, a – I don't think that's what that movie's doing, though, is it? <laughs> yes. No. The movie is just like, look at the two most important people in the world. Two people with genuine faults, which I think the movie expresses very clearly. Does it? Yeah. Um, it does. And uh, two people who may not be the best match for one another, who fall in love – who play out that same melodramatic story, admittedly, but done with, I think, uh, genuine sensitivity and and a real director's eye from Bradley Cooper. Oh, come on. Let me jump through my argument right right now because I know we're running out of time probably. And let me just say, how the heck do you explain that parking lot scene? That is gross. That's one of my favorite parts of the movie. What are you talking about? That's They're like, we're going to sit in the parking lot and sing, and I'm a famous person, and she's ugly. It's just mm, so stupid. Mm, no. So it's like I, a Lifetime movie. I it's got, like a Lifetime movie. I got swept up in it, in that genuine- I get, sweeped, I get swept up in Lifetime movies all the time. That so genuine old Hollywood melodrama. This doesn't <laughs> bear too much resemblance to reality, but- <laughs> I'm I'm taken with it anyway, and if 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 all you can see in that movie is Lifetime movie, I don't know what to tell you because I think it's doing. I think it's doing so much more than that. I think it has a lot to say about well, addiction and the effects of addiction. Okay, addiction sucks. That's what it says. (laughs) It's like addiction's bad. People die. People pee pee themselves on stage. Like the Grammys. Um, he didn't do that at the Oscars, uh, so f- fortunately for Bradley Cooper. I pissed myself in that movie because I was so angry. I'm joking. I didn't I, really. I, I don't know what to tell. <laughs> like, I, I, you know, it's not something I've gone back and rewatched, uh, but I remember just feeling really good about it. I, I think you wanted to like this movie when you went on. I think you like Bradley Cooper's little face. I do just like, like Bradley Cooper's else. little face. And I think you went in there and you're like, I'm going to love this movie. And, and it's going to be like, I'm going to let them, I'm going to lean into old Hollywood like I do. Like you tend to do. I, and I let do them tend to do that. Do whatever they want to do and not make anybody do any work or earn a paycheck. And that little performance at the Oscars made me sick to my stomach. I know. I was sitting right next to you. And I have to say also <laughs> that was good. And that song is, in fact, a banger. A banger. Oh, it's a banger it's now. It's a banger. No, I, I just have to completely disagree with you. That song annoys the hell out of me. That movie annoys the hell out of me. It's the worst. It's the worst A Star is Born. And guess what? We didn't really need another it's one. The worst one? It's the worst out of one? Your, you're out of your gourd. It's the worst one. Sam Elliott alone ensures that it's I like far Sam from Elliott. The worst I didn't need him to be in this film. He's got other stuff he could be doing. Mm.
Ooh, now I'm worked up. <laughs> Sam, do you want to run in here and, and give us your take? All right, as Corey paces behind me, um, at first I was totally on Corey's side because I think I liked the movie, and at this point I thought I had really liked the movie, but it really just isn't that good. And you get like the overall like hype from everyone else saying it's the greatest movie ever. I really like how Corey started out with, we are far from the shallow now. We're just even debating it. And huge points to Rachel for saying that Lady Gaga is playing like, she has played an eccentric character her entire life, and but she's just a bland actress in this. Like, her entire shtick is performance art and being someone else, but she's just, like, Hollywood Actress 101 in this. And also, I think casting her as an ugly girl is, like, quote, ugly girl, is, like, casting, like, a non-skinny actress for a cheap, fat, positive Netflix original and then praising yourselves heavily for it. And the parking lot scene is totally dumb. I didn't realize it at first, but it's so dumb when you look at it. Like, oh my god, it really is a Lifetime movie. As Rachel quietly fist pumps and Corey shakes his fist. And yeah, I still don't know why Bradley Cooper is praised as like a super talented renaissance man when it's a remake of a remake of a remake. Like, he didn't really do anything original on this one. He just kind of like found the project again and made it and happened to do a lot of it. And also, I think, I mean, I was moved in theaters and cried a little bit, but I think only because I was so comfortable in those newly renovated AMC seats. So yeah, I'm gonna go with Rachel on this one. <laughs> Look how bad Corey is. So that's what Sam thinks. Unfortunately. <laughs> but what do you think? You can uh, visit us on our Facebook page to vote. At Sidewalk Film. So at the 19th annual Sidewalk Film Festival, we had three sold-out screenings of a true crime documentary called Forever B. Now it's gotten a new title, Abducted in Plain Sight and become something of an internet sensation since its January debut to streaming audiences on Netflix. Abducted in Plain Sight tells the story of Jan Broberg, who in the 1970s was kidnapped twice and repeatedly victimized by a manipulative, trusted family friend. Today, I'm talking to the director of Abducted in Plain Sight, Sky Borden. Obviously, since you were at Sidewalk with the film, it's not only undergone a title change, it's sort of, uh, I guess you could say, gone viral to some degree and with what must feel like a whirlwind of press and activity since its Netflix debut. What has life been like as the film's director since, um, well, since that happened? How has it been to see it take off like this? Yeah, it's been incredible to see Abducted in Plain Sight now. It was Forever Be When We Were at Sidewalk. Uh, kind of get wings and fly. I don't know that I ever expected it to happen. I, I certainly had hoped that it would happen, but it's just been, it's been great to see how people are talking about it because that's what our, our goal was from the moment we started talking about making this film was really to start the conversation about child abuse and to see that people are talking to experience all of these different facets of this terrible, horrible, very difficult conversation has been has been really inspiring and amazing. Reliving memories like this for the Broberg family had to be painful enough during the festival run. And now that it's on Netflix, their story is getting international attention. Uh, how have they dealt with that sudden influx of attention to their story? It's been difficult for the Brobergs, but to an extent, I also feel like they were prepared for it. Mm -hmm. 
during the filming process, I know that that uh, they made a decision that they were going to tell their whole truth and tell the most embarrassing part of their life, really the most shameful part of their life. And so I, I, I do feel like they were somewhat prepared. I don't think they were prepared for the film to to hit at the level that it's hit. And, and some of the, not feedback, but I guess some of the, the backlash that's been happening has been, has been really mean in a way. And, and I don't know that they were quite prepared for that because when they've gotten backlash in the past for what they did, social media wasn't really a thing. And so this, this filter that I think social media provides that lets people say whatever they want to say and not really have any kind of, consciousness about a real person on the other side of that comment I think that's something that's new for them and it's been difficult but they're but they're still very committed to telling the story um Bob Broberg actually passed away last November so he hasn't he hasn't had to deal with any of it uh and I don't know if that's I don't know if it's better or worse I know that it makes it actually harder on his daughters and his wife because they're seeing so many negative things about him and they're also just really feeling the loss of, of him in their lives. So that's that's been tough for them too. I, I, I guess the increase in attention is kind of a, a double-edged sword because like you said, the, yeah. inter- the internet can be, can be vicious and obviously a lot of that viciousness is directed toward Jan's parents and, and people's rather glib or perceived role in or how they perceive the parents' role to be in, in what happened to Jan. And, you know, I've noticed that, too, just as a as an observer to watching this film kind of take off. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, Bob Birchtold, as you so thoroughly lay out, is, is kind of a master manipulator. He's a groomer who essentially brainwashes this whole family into allowing him, you know, all this access that he has to Jan – it's easy, or I suppose we can all just sort of sit back and think, well, that, I would never let that happen to me or my family. But the, the fact of the matter is it does happen. And we've seen other examples in, well, other recent true crime documentaries like Leaving Neverland, which mm-hmm. illustrates how possible it is for someone to manipulate the trust of families and get access to children. What do you hope people come to understand the most about this sort of predator? What I'd love for people to to walk away from my film with and leaving Neverland and any film really of this nature is is that it's the people who are doing the abuse are people that we know, love, and trust. It's not a stranger in a trench coat that shows up at your kid's school. It's it's the people that we hold dear in our lives, and it's it's happening because we don't think it could happen with that person, and they've they've managed to create an environment of trust so that they can disappear with our kids and and do terrible things to them. So that's that's really what I'm hoping people take away is just that it does happen within the home, it happens within the school, it happens with people you trust, it happens with the father or the stepfather or the mother or the grandmother or the school teacher or the nanny or the cop or the fireman. It's people that we trust in our lives that are doing the child abuse. Yeah. We screened Abducted in Plain Sight in um, August 2017. Um, and that was kind of at the beginning of what's become a, a bit of a historical moment, which 
victims of sexual abuse have, have kind of said enough is enough. They're, they're sharing their stories. They're taking ownership of these, their stories. And they're talking openly about their trauma at the hands of, of predatory men. Now, you and Jan have worked to share her story. Uh, and obviously, Jan and her family shared their story before, as so many sexual assault victims have. Why are people only recently starting to listen to this story? What is it about the last year and a half? Well, I mean, I think the whole Weinstein movement and the Me Too movement has been has been a real turning point for victims sharing their stories publicly. And I think one woman does it or one man does it and then another one and another one. And I think with everything that unity brings strength and knowing that that we're not alone in this, knowing that abuse and harassment is something that's very common and that we all experience it in some form or another and knowing that we're not alone i think i think there's strength in that and i think that people are much more willing to tell their stories now because i look i think we're still going to get knocked down for it i think we're still not going to be necessarily believed for the stories that we have to tell but i think we're going to be believed a little bit more and then when we do it tomorrow we'll be believed a little bit more and the day after that a little bit more so if we can just keep telling these stories i think the belief in our voices will grow strength in numbers sort of yeah yeah definitely you Mm -hmm. toured quite extensively from festival to festival with the film through that process you had a lot of opportunities to talk to viewers um, as a filmmaker and as a storyteller, what have, what have you seen? What's the biggest takeaway in how people have responded to it? What have people come up to say to you about the film? It was some of the most powerful moments of my life, really, because it opened up a conversation. After we screened the film, the conversations that came out were electric. People had so many questions. People were angry. They were sad. They were confused. They were, they were really conflicted in how to feel. And, and it also... I think it's that same thing in Strength in Numbers. It gave people some inspiration that, A, that Jan came out of this as this wonderful, beautiful, amazing, well-adjusted woman, and also to tell their stories. I mean, I don't, I don't think there was one single screening that we had in our entire festival run where somebody didn't come up to me afterwards and tell me something like this had happened in their lives. And 50% of the time, they'd never told anybody before. So it had spurred this feeling of trust and this feeling of wanting to tell their story. Abducted in Plain Sight is also kind of benefiting um, as being part of a larger movement right now in um, true crime, I guess you could call it nonfiction filmmaking. Uh, these true crime stories and documentaries, whether it, it's films or limited series or podcasts, are kind of having a moment. And I suppose that true crime was never not popular, but it seems particularly popular at the moment. Why, why do you think true crime in general is having its cultural moment uh, right now? Yeah, I don't know why it's right now. I think the cultural moment stems a lot. I mean, somebody told me the other day that like the second paragraph in the Bible is about crime, murder. And I was like, oh, wow. So it's been here forever. You know, <laughs> it has been here forever. But I think, I think people are a little bit that we're curious about things that could happen. And I think, especially I think because women are, are the majority of the audience, not all of it, certainly, but, but we are a bigger audience for the true crime phenomenon that's happening right now. And I think a lot of it is so that we want to protect ourselves and 
and maybe know what all of these different situations are so that if we were to happen into them, we would have a little bit more knowledge and maybe be able to to get out of it. And I mean, we, we do that every day. I mean, when you talk about, you know, what feelings we as women have on a minute by minute basis that are different from men, you know, we walk to our cars and we check in the back seats and we're looking around us and men don't do that. And so we're constantly aware of potential threats. Now, you could make an argument, is it true crime that makes us aware or are we aware and true crime sort of helps us? I don't know which way that goes, but I definitely think that, that that's part of it. And I think documentaries themselves are, are having this new wave of, of storytelling. I mean, it's, it's such an open, free format. You can, I mean, there are no rules really what you can do in a documentary. And I think, I think we've proved that sort of time and time again, that documentaries are kind of the, the wild, wild west of filmmaking. And I think you put true crime and documentaries together and it's just, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to sort of sit down and experience that. And and the Netflix factor, I suppose, has to play into it too. The idea that you have a large catalog of these sorts of stories and, and documentaries of all sorts available at your fingertips. Has that experience been largely positive for, for you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, it's easy to, I mean, Netflix, when, when Netflix picked up our film, it was great. And, and just the access that people have to our film now is, is wonderful. I mean, I do feel like, like what's also beautiful about Netflix is that they've got so many different genres of films, because I know I can go down that sort of true crime rabbit hole and just sit there and start binge watching true crime to a point where I'm like, okay, I just need me some, some, something fun, some like home makeover show or queer eye or something great and fun and happy, you know, but, um, it's 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 going to be interesting, I think, because there's you know there's two sides to this true crime coin, and is it it is it something that we as media makers and filmmakers are these stories we should be telling? Is it sensationalized? Is that something that Netflix is doing? Is that something that the audience is calling for? And I think it's a little bit of of all of that. I mean, I think there's I know that there's a want and a need and that the audiences absolutely want it. But when you really dig down to a more ethical question, are they stories we should be telling? And it's, it's something I asked myself a lot in making abducted. And, and when I would go in one direction or the other direction, I'd really come back to the family, the Broberg family and the fact that they wanted to tell their story and that we all really truly feel like this is a story that by being told will hopefully save a life. And to me, that's the biggest reason. Well, that's a wonderful note to end on, I think. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us again. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for asking me. Of course, we're big supporters of of the film. We were thrilled to see it take uh, take off, get this new life on Netflix. Yeah, well, Sidewalk has always been uh, one of my favorite festivals, so I I would love to come back with a new film very soon, hopefully. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. We'd certainly love to, to have you come back. Thank you. And now, Fast Film Terms. Today with the fast film terms, I'm going to kind of ask you a question and, okay. and then we'll go from there. So if we're on a film set mm-hmm. and I tell you to go get a stinger, what is that? I don't know. Oh, wow. That's an extension cord. Is that really? Really? Yeah. Okay. And so I've got another one. Okay. If we're on a film set and I say to you, hey, put that camera on sticks. I don't know. That's a tripod. Well, that makes sense. Guess what it's time for now. What's this shit? So I've got notes. Okay. That's the sound you of my notes. You took notes. 
on a terrible movie that you watched at Cardia Cinema. That's right. I'm on the treadmill. Here we go. And so we're going to see how quickly you can name it. Are you ready? All right. I'm ready. We got Vin Diesel. Okay. I'm on board. I know this is weird, but sometimes I'm like, is it Vin Diesel or is it The Rock? I know there's a difference, but I was very sure to, to notice it was Vin Diesel. Okay. And then there's Tony Collette with a smoky eye. I know what this is already. Oh, my God. You're kidding me. Can I just say that he's wearing the most giantest, most outrageous jacket I've ever seen in my life? What the hell is this film? <laughs> the jacket is actually Xander Cage's signature fur coat. And the film is Triple X, The Return of Xander Cage, Blech. in which Vin Diesel's extreme uh, sports slash action spy star, whatever the hell, from that original early 2000s uh nothing uh returns because we're just really scraping the bottom of the barrel these days uh to do some more extreme sports action slash spy work this time tony collette is in it taking a paycheck because i guess hereditary didn't pay that well what was she, she thinking she, she, just, she didn't need to do this just like jennifer anson does not need to sell us smart water stop it Stop it, people. Yeah, but you make you make something like hereditary for scale and you got right. you gotta eat. I mean that smoky eye looks good. I'm gonna give her that. And boy, oh boy, do the ladies love Vin Diesel in this film. They can't They're take their hands off over. of him. He no. walks around in that coat Could, and they can just you, fall But I mean, can you blame him? I mean that coat, the, the textures oh, alone. Yeah, for sure. You know, under Isn't that Isn't he kinda hot in that thing? It's He's gotta be. I mean, he's mostly muscle. I don't know. You know what we don't need to do? What? Talk another second about this heart. Yeah, problem. it's very bad. So now it's time for Cal's Corner. Cal McKinnon is the features programmer for the Sidewalk Film Festival and Cinema. He's going to take a few minutes to talk about whatever the heck he wants to. Here are three of my favorite moments from going to the movies. One was when I saw the movie The Hills Have Eyes 2. It was the it was the sequel to the remake of The Hills Have Eyes 2, which is a very terrible movie. The um the the remake is fantastic, but the sequel is is utter garbage, but that's not the point. The point is, is when I was in line to buy tickets for the movie, a school bus wa- uh, didn't walk up. A school bus drove up, and a whole bunch of kids came out of the school bus, and I was like, I really hope they're going to the movie I'm going to. And it turns out they were going to The Hills Have Eyes too. Not only that, this group of kids, and when I say kids, most of them were about like 13 or 14 years old, were just all sitting behind me. And we're watching the trailers to uh, the the upcoming movies, and um, and there was one or two kids that were just constantly making fun of whatever was on the screen, just saying how stupid it was and how dumb it was. And then the trailer for the William Friedkin movie Bug came on, and um, Bug is actually it turned out I, I didn't know what it was at the time, but it turns out to be like a really terrific movie, and um, about paranoia and how like people can like influence each other's madness, and um, it's this awesome thriller, very claustrophobic, and the trailer it's you know it kind of builds up and builds up before they give the name away, and eventually the the, the voiceover says Bug, and. <laughs> One kid just yells out loud, that's stupid. And then this little girl that was with their group, there's a little silence. And you just hear this little girl's voice say, my brother named Bug. And I lost my mind. And I easily could have gotten up and left that movie theater more satisfied than had I just stayed for the rest of the movie that played. That was, I really enjoyed that time. So another another thing I've I, 
I really enjoyed at a movie theater once was um, when The Shape of Water came out. Um, that's the that's the really awesome movie Guillermo del Toro wrote and directed. Um, it's a creature from the Black Lagoon love story. And it seemed to be very like, you know, it, it seemed to kind of flow and make sense the whole time. I didn't have any issues following it. But it was right as the movie ended and the credits were rolling. Um, I was sitting with my wife in the back row and there was an older couple to the left of us. And, you know, people were starting to kind of get up and you hear the uh, the husband of this group. You hear the husband say, you know, you kind of start rooting for the monster by the end of the movie. And I, uh, I, I, I couldn't believe that you said that. I try. I was very polite and didn't just like burst out laughing. But all I could think is like, this is basically ET for grownups. Like you, you're not going to be confused. You're not going to assume that ET is a bad guy because he's a creature that's not a person. You know. So um, that was a very special moment. Um, and another one, another just noteworthy moment. It was not funny at all. It was actually quite, um, it was quite uncomfortable. But it always kind of sticks with me. Is um, when I went to see the Brown Bunny uh, in in Seattle. I was I was on a road trip with two friends of mine, and um, it it had gotten kind of weird. We went to go we went to go to Snoqualmie to go where they filmed Twin Peaks. And there was just this bad vibe on our trip the whole time. Um, and it wasn't until about three days after Snoqualmie that we went to, um, we went through Seattle because we we're going to fly out of Tacoma and, you know, checked out the, the listings to see what was playing. And Brown Bunny was one of them. And I didn't actually, I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought I would have been able to see Brown Bunny in a theater, but, um, and, and if you don't know about Brown Bunny, it's a Vincent Gallo, uh, piece that um, piece is an interesting word. Um, uh, it, it's a very, very, very slow moving, artful film um, about a guy who basically travels across the country breaking women's hearts. Um, and there's a notorious scene towards the end of it, and it, it involves on screen fellatio. And um, I mean, I was aware that that was going to happen, but here's what happened in the movie theater this is a micro cinema. I mean, it was. Um, it was probably less than 100 seats. And there was a really, really aggro guy that walked in with his girlfriend. And he looked like he was a like a like a semi-professional motorcycle guy like that would race, which relates to the main character of the movie. And he he has bad vibes, but uh, I'm kind of forgetting about him. And when that notorious scene happens, it goes on for a seemingly for ages and you know everyone is just dead quiet i'm sure everyone is feeling kind of uncomfortable and once that scene concludes this guy stands up and does the slow clap just like that out of like sheer venom and sarcasm which really really added to the discomfort that everyone was experiencing and so the movie wrapped up just a little bit past that scene maybe like 15 or 20 minutes later and he's one of the first people that gets up and it's basically like well that sucked and just kind of looks around the room and just picks up his wife he doesn't physically pick her up but like takes her hand and they just walk out of there so that's always stuck with me thank you for listening to my favorite movie going experiences 
Kyle McKinnon is a feature film programmer for the Sidewalk Film Center and Cinema. This is a recorded message. Corey, we've got so many awesome events coming up. Um, pretty much all month long, we've got stuff going on one way or another. And I can't wait for the cinema to open when we'll do even more. And so we have this really cool screening series that we do. And it's the third Tuesday of every month. And that's in our series called Screen Talks. You can find out more about that. Um, right now, we've got several in a row coming up, including The Brink, which is a Steve Bannon documentary. Fill in the Grum Reaper sound right here. <laughs> and then we've got, uh, on a different note, the Dr. Ruth documentary, which is called Ask Dr. Ruth. And she's an amazing woman. So I'm really looking forward to celebrating her. And then we've got this film called Hail Satan? Question mark about the Satanic Temple. And they're all three really excellent documentaries. I'm really proud to bring them to Birmingham. Instead of trying to direct you right now to which one is which, just go to our website, SidewalkFest.com. So we've got this amazing original music that I am in love with. We so, love our new theme. It's great. Yeah, and I have to thank Jason Keener, and I have to credit Splash96. We record the Sidewalk Podcast here at the amazing Boutwell Studios in Homewood, Alabama. Visit BoutwellStudios.com for more information on the various services they offer, including ADR services, sound design, original music, and, of course, podcasting. So thank you so much for listening to Sidewalk Podcast. We hope you'll continue to do so. This is your own personal Howard Stern and Robin. Um, of course, I'm Howard Stern. And I'm Robin. This is uh, Corey Kraft as Robin. And also visit us at SidewalkFest.com and on the social medias. At Sidewalk Film on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and pretty much everything else. Batwell Studios Podcast Division. Your words, our expertise.